0: Welcome to the Brain Trust Driving Change Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Bloomfield. And whether you're a leader, a coach, a salesperson, or even a parent, this podcast focuses on how to leverage the science of decision-making to help you become a more impactful communicator and a driving force for change. Well, welcome back to the Driving Change Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Bloomfield. And, and today's guest, many of you will know, Because he is one of the most prolific writers, authors, speakers of our time, Mr. Andy Andrews. And I've admired him for, you know, just decades. He's written, my first exposure to him was, I think, through The Traveler's Gift. Many of you will know that book. It's impacted a lot of people, millions of people around the world. Um, He's also written things like The Butterfly Effect, The Noticer. Um, How Do You Kill 11 Million People, which we'll get into that later. Uh, Just Jones is a recent, look, I could go down the list of books he's written, but just go on his website and look, he's written, I don't even know how many now, but it's multiple pages worth. And he's into children's books as well. Um, What I love about Andy is he has not just the gift of storytelling. He has the gift of teaching through storytelling and using the art of narrative to teach age old principles in a way that maybe that you hadn't thought about him before, that makes you curious to, th- to learn more about yourself through the way he writes, teaches, and speaks. Um, give you a little bit, a couple things. He's been requested by four US presidents over his career to come and speak. New York Times, um, they say he's like one of the, 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 the best hidden secrets of thought leaders in the world, which I would totally agree with. If you believe anything the New York times says In this case, I do. Uh, he's been on the New York times bestseller list with multiple of these books. It's been translated into 40 plus languages. Um, 20 million books sold worldwide. I am just admire. I mean, I'm a I marvel at that. I'm trying to sell, you know, 10 books a, a month out of our, you know, I'm just, we're going to get into the seven decisions that became foundational to Andy's career that he discovered along the way as well. And then we'll find out at the end what you can do to learn more about Andy's work and how you can learn from him as well. So Andy, it is an honor to have you on the Driving Change Podcast. Welcome, my friend.
1: Jeff, it's an honor to be here. Thank you for your time.
0: We could have spent the first 30 minutes of the episode just reading all of your accolades and awards. And I know, but I know you don't care about any of that stuff. You if really. You, just,
1: if you did, I would. I would ask my wife to just listen to the first part of it and say, "See, I I have done something."
0: Other people do think I know what I'm talking about, honey. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, that's awesome. Well, as I told you in our pre show, we always start at the Driving Change podcast by having the audience get to know you a little bit better as a human. And the best way that I found to do that is to take us a little bit back into your origin story. Where did you grow up? And and, in those early days, who had the biggest influence over that young Andy Andrews mind that will eventually turn into somebody who changed the world in many ways?
1: Well, I, I grew up all over Alabama. My dad was a minister. And so we moved uh you know every three to five years. So I grew up in Birmingham and and Montgomery Dothan. When I when I consider when I write about growing up, I'm generally talking about Dothan. That was between the third and the ninth grade. So a lot happened there, and and my my parents were really my my driving force there. Uh, my parents and. Uh, there was a, a an eighth grade English teacher. And so I started to say literature, but it was English and literature. That's eighth grade, and and uh, she was a little African American woman named Mrs. McLeod, and she was the first one to tell me I could write, first one to say that I was funny, but do it in a in a in a prepared way, and so. I, you know, I, I grew up actually wanting to talk. I I I, I guess I kind of wanted to be a speaker, but I, I didn't have anything to say, so that'll kill a speaking career. But I, I grew up with that. And, you know, people ask about writing at that time. And I, I honestly, I was not the best writer in my senior English class. I mean, if you had come into the class at that time and said, OK, who's going to have some New York Times bestsellers? It wouldn't have been me. And I I said for a long time that I was not the best writer in my senior English class. And then I was speaking at Ole Miss, and uh, a lady came up to me, and she said, Andy, do you remember me? And I said, yes, I do. Ethel, you sat in front of me in Ms. Bergen's senior English class, what are you doing now? And she said that she was a, a, a doctorate and a professor of English literature at Ole Miss. And I was like, wow, I wasn't even the best writer on my row.
0: <laughs> well, you did say though that you loved, you, you had an idea that you wanted to be a speaker, but had nothing to say. I'm surprised you didn't become a politician then.
1: Yeah, that that would have been that would that would have been having nothing to say for the rest of your life.
0: <laughs> you figured out you had something to say, so you didn't want to go down that path, right? Uh, so your parents, so your dad was a minister, and you traveled around a lot. So you probably got to hear a lot of sermons. You got to hear a lot of. Uh, See, so your your father probably had a unique style. Did he have a similar gift for uh, uh, storytelling?
1: Yeah, yeah, my dad was a nut, and and I and I I look back on that time because I I, I I tell people you know I. I some of my books have historical bent to them. You know, even in the fiction, they'll have a historical bent. And and I, I tell people that I, I write stories uh, because it's the only way I can remember anything. You know, when I was in school, I think I would have, I, I didn't like history growing up. And I was late to come to that, to an appreciation of history. But I think that I would have really enjoyed it if i had just had a teacher who walked in one day and said okay close your books today we're not going to memorize dates i'm going to tell you a story and it's true and I, and i realized that growing up all the sermons that i sat through it sounded like charlie brown's teacher for the most part but then the pieces i remember i mean it, it would be it would break through that cloud you know, you're 10 years old and you're sitting there and and I hear. Like, it's like this guy was walking down the street one day and then, man, I would tune in. And when the story was over, I, it's like these three guys are in a boat and and I, I'd tune in. And so the stories captivated me and allowed me to learn. I The things that you taught me with a story, I remember to this day. Uh, the things that I had to to memorize facts, I remembered until I took the test, and then it was gone.
0: Man, we talk about that all the time, and now we're we're validating that right with actual neuroscience, right? right. And how how story taps into that part of the brain that's long term memory is stored, emotions are regulated, internal visualization takes place. It bypasses that judgmental, analytical part of our brain, which that we don't really care about, right? We we don't pay attention to that information. And so you, you figured that out at a young age. Most of us have intuitively recognized the great teachers, the great communicators when we're children are the ones who can put stuff into a narrative. And right. so you're going through that process. And let's fast forward a little bit and, and um, give the audience a little bit of that kind of shock teaser here. So what happened to where you were by 20, you were homeless, living under a, a bridge? What, what, the, what in the world happened to your life that caused that scenario to take place?
1: Well, and first, let me let me go back and say I don't know that I learned that lesson of stories as a kid. I think I was I think I was aware of my attraction to stories, but I didn't really understand their power until later. I didn't understand why I had moved away from one type of thing and moved toward another type of thing, and that power of story. Uh, lodged as an understanding uh, after what you refer to. I I had uh, a pretty normal life until I was 19. And then my parents died in the same year. My mom was killed in a car accident. My dad was, I mean, my mom was killed uh, with, with cancer. My dad was killed in a car accident, same year. And so a, a crazy time, as you can imagine, but I've always had the ability to take a bad situation and make it worse. And I did. I, I, I made some bad moves and he ended up literally homeless living under a, a pier on the, on the Gulf coast and, and in and out of people's garages in the winter, which is not safe or smart, but I did. And, and this was uh, a crazy time in my life, but I met this, met this old guy late one night under my pier, scared me to death. And, um, and this this guy, we had seen him in and out of town for years. Everybody kind of knew who he was, but we didn't know where he stayed when he got to town. We didn't know where he went when he left. He wore the same clothes all the time, but he seemed to be clean. He we didn't know how old he was. You know, we were looking at him as like, is he eighty or hundred and eighty? We weren't really sure. Uh, we called him Jones. Not Mr. Jones, just Jones, and and we didn't know what was in the suitcase he carried around, but he was the first person to ever tell me the truth about myself. And and when I say that, what I mean is that when you meet somebody having a tough time, what do we do? We we buy them a meal, we give them five dollars, we put them on the prayer list, but rarely do we sit down with them and tell them things about themselves that might make them angry at us. And this is. This is what he did. And if people say, so he made you mad? Oh, yeah. This is like constantly. But where am I going? I'm living under a pier. This is the only guy paying any attention to me. Um, but he gave me uh, gave me books. I, I had always been a, a Sports Illustrated, Field and Stream kind of person. And I, for some reason, I particularly hated biographies. I, I guess because they made me read them in school and I didn't really see the point. And and so he handed me three one night, and they were hardback books without the dust cover. And I knew they were biographies immediately because they only had the names on them. Uh, it, it was Winston Churchill, George Washington Carver, and Will Rogers. And I didn't know what to say. And I said, "Biographies," and he said, "No, these are adventure stories." These are mysteries and romances and thrillers, and they're true. And I said, Oh, he said, Yeah, they're from the library. When you get through with them, take them back. And so I started reading Churchill that night, not really because I intended to read it. I intended, I, I, just, I started it because I knew he would ask me and i was going to say yeah i'm i'm reading the churchill one but i got but there's like the first chapter there was something like you know in kindergarten winston met clementine and if you know he didn't know it then but she was one day to become the first lady to the prime minister and i i remember thinking yeah oh, there's the romance and and then you know get to the end of these short chapters and Every chapter would end with something like, and if he had only known what was in the next room, Winston would never have walked through the door. And I would be like, ah, crap. And I'm, you know, I turn, okay, I'll keep reading. And, And then the World War II started, and I'm thinking, that's the thriller. And I was very aware that I was thinking those things because he had said it. But I was also aware that I was legitimately thinking it. And and so I got hooked on these biographies. I, I, and I ended up reading over 200 biographies of these happy, influential, financially secure, great people. I, 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 would say, I say I say great people. It makes me think, you know, do they do books of any other kind of people? This is like not, a, not a, a loser section on Amazon. But I I would read these books thinking, what is it about these people? You know, because I had started asking myself, is life just a lottery ticket? You know, that some person gets born this way and then some person gets born to live under a pier. Because I, I thought, you know, if life is just a lottery ticket, I'm not sure I want to hang around. And and so I, I began to to see a pattern in these people. And and I eventually identified seven things. and I, and I knew they I called them things. I knew they weren't habits. I knew they weren't uh, uh, characteristics. It turns out they were principles. but I would I identified seven principles in the lives of these people, but the curious thing was, while I could see them with the passage of time, I wasn't sure that they all knew they had all seven. Because it was it was like each one of them would harness two or three of them. You could see all seven with a passage time. I just wasn't sure that they knew they had that and were harnessing. But I, but I thought, what happens to a life that knows all seven? What happens to to a kid whose parent teaches the child all seven of these things? What happens to that life? And and long story short, those are the things that I started throwing into my life at that point to yank myself out from under the pier. And years later, they became the seven decisions in the traveler's gift.
0: All right. So we got to take a breath because I, like right now I, we got to do a, a rewind and a summary that led us up to this point. Cause it's, it's very fantastical. Like what, what's the, your life journey there at that point, normal childhood, father's a minister, mother, you're traveling around, moving every three or four years, Alabama area. Uh, then at 19, your mom's diagnosed with cancer. She passes away. Your dad dies in an automobile accident the same year. And you find yourself kind of destitute, homeless, living under a pier. So far, so good. I got you first 19 years. That's it. And then this strange guy, that, this guy that just keeps popping in and out of town, starts to show up periodically and randomly decides to come down and figure out what you're doing under this pier. And somehow, some way determines that he can make an impact on you by introducing you to literature and putting you in a position. He probably saw something in you that you couldn't see in yourself in that moment. And it was during that pursuit of that information at first out of obligation, because you figured you're going to get quizzed by this guy and you didn't even know whether he was going to show up with something else in that suitcase or not. But then it led to a level of curiosity, which then turned you into somebody who went to the library to read a little bit more which then turned you into a student of these people, these 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 characters of literature and human real history, and then all of a sudden you start having these epiphanies. What time period has now transpired from nineteen under the pier to you saying, "Okay, there's something here for me." Well,
1: there were. It, it took me after my parents died at nineteen. It took me two years to get under the pier. I I got twenty five hundred dollars in um, insurance money from my dad. And so being the financial genius that I was at the time, I used the entire 2500 to buy a trailer. Uh, it, you know, it never occurred to me I'd have to pay somebody to move it, pay somebody to put it somewhere. And I was behind the eight ball right away. but it, the short story in two years of how I ended up under the pier is is at first, I had a car and a trailer. Then I had a motorcycle and a trailer then i had a motorcycle and a tent then i had a tent then i was under the pier and and so that took two years and uh and so in really the the next two years were spent off and on under that under that pier not really living anywhere in particular and and those were the <clears throat> those were foundational times you know i, I worked i was not I was not a bum. I was, I was, uh, catching fish, selling fish, selling bait, uh, cleaning fish, washing boats, taking people, fishing. And, and so I made them enough to stay alive and, and I had, but I had a lot of thinking time. And, and so, you know, that question about what is it, you know, can, is life a lottery ticket? Can something be done? and, and if something can be done, what do you do? And how long does it take to do it? Those were the, the things that I started that that really propelled me out of that situation for the last time. And and I started renting a place and and um, and actively I didn't know how to be on stage at that time, you know, I I had this wild idea, I wanted to be a speaker, but I I knew I didn't have anything to say. And at 23, who wants to hear what you have to say? Uh, But the only way I knew to be on stage was to be a comedian. And so I, I kind of dove into that. I started, and this was before any, this is way before any comedy clubs. There were only four comedy clubs in America. There was. uh, uh, the improv and catch a rising star in New York. And there was a comedy store in the improv in LA. And, but I was going in and asking bands, could I go between their sets? And, you know, these people were, uh, these people who had never seen a comedian in their life. And of course, they still weren't seeing one. But, <laughs> but I, uh, that, that was kind of my, training ground to how how do you communicate to people that not only do they not expect you they're not obligated to listen to you and and so i i did that and ended up doing pretty well with it i i got uh i started doing college dates ended up being uh a thousand colleges and universities voted me comedian of the year in 86 and 87. And then in 87, I was also entertainer of the year on the college campuses. And so it was just like the, that, that trophy is like one year it was the police next year it's Huey Lewis in the news next year it was me. And at, at that point, I, I, uh toured for two years with Joan Rivers I was her opening act for two years and then went from there five years with Kenny Rogers and it was on a bus with Kenny one night when I'm talking about living under the pier and he's talking about growing up in a garage in Houston with 150 brothers and sisters or whatever it was and and I told him about those seven things and he said you need to start talking about those like you know in your in your shows I'm like In my shows, they're well. They're not funny," he said. He said, "Yeah, I know, but you're a talker, and so you transition." And I said, "So just like be funny, then be serious." He said, "Yeah, and then be funny again." Right. And and so then I asked him the big question. I said, "You want me to do it in your show?" And he said, "Yeah, I think so." And he was the hottest act on the planet at the time. It was always me, Dolly Parton and Kenny, or me, the Oak Ridge boys and Kenny, or me, Ronnie Millsap and Kenny. And, and so we were doing arenas, but I started, you know, segueing into these three and four minute explanations of these, these decisions, these principles. And, and then I would, segue out of it. And after the show, people started coming up and going, wow, that was, that was great. Your serious part was my favorite part, which is not usually what a comedian wants to hear. Right. But but at that point, I, I started being asked to to go into corporate settings. And, and soon after that, I wrote The Traveler's Gift, which is a story about a family going through a tough time and the dad gets to travel through time meeting with seven historical figures who are also going through a tough time of their own. He used to be with Anne Frank in the Annex and with uh, Truman while Truman's determining what to do about this weapon he knows he has, but nobody else knows about. And, and he gets to be with Solomon when Solomon says, bring me the sword and I'll tell you whose baby this is. And each of these seven historical figures give this man a different principle and explain it to him. And if he puts it, this principle in his life, things will change. So that's the story of the Travelers,
0: Wow, what an amazing life journey. And to have somebody like Kenny Rogers be the spark that really sets you into that. I, I could go for days wanting to learn more about what you learned about communicating as a comedian. Because we tell I tell people a lot of times, there's a lot of lessons can be learned from comedians. And many of them do it trial and error. But from a communication standpoint, for consistency and knowing timing and knowing how to bring something through an arc and, and have a payoff and a punchline. And there's a lot of value. I'm sure you probably picked well, up as a comedian. We right? we
1: can do a whole show on that. And so if, <laughs> if you have me back, I'll I'll talk about that.
0: That's perfect. So Kenny Kenny triggers you into this idea of sharing these things. You start getting great feedback about them. When you're, you're, you know, you want to be known for being funny, all of a sudden people are starting to recognize there's a little more depth to some of the things you're saying. Your jokes are funny, but the best I can do is repeat those. These other things, wow, I can, I could potentially do something with those. And so you start to recognize there might be some more depth to your purpose. Is it, And then that led to the traveler's gift, right?
1: Yeah, and the the, the old man on the beach. Uh, Jones he called himself a noticer. He he would say, you know, when God was passing out talents, I didn't get the cool ones. I can't run fast, I can't sing great, but I notice little things that make a difference in people's lives. And so I I came to understand that that's what a good comedian does. Notices things that other people miss and communicates them back to them in, in a funny way. But it's also what what a great mentor does it's is to be a noticer to to notice little things and be able to communicate them in a way and so it, it wasn't as odd a segue into helping businesses and teams as people think from a from being a comedian
0: Right. Well, I can totally see that. So there's some of these principles and we don't, we don't necessarily have to get into all seven because I want people to go read the book and I want them to follow along because there's a lot that goes into that. But there's a couple concepts that you said here that I want to explore a little further in our remaining time. The first thing you said was you had this curiosity. If, if people can go into the dumper with their decision-making and turn their life kind of in a downward spiral through spiral through bad decision-making Could they not also, on the other side of it, through good decision-making, turn their life positive? And that's been a big part of your pursuit, right, is to get people to think about the choices we make. And you talk about this a lot, I think, in the butterfly effect as well, the decisions we make and the ripple they have. But it starts with your own life, right, before you can affect others. Is that kind of your...
1: And that's why that's why I, the first of those seven decisions is responsibility, and and I I often use that as an example because you know when when the travelers' gift came out I hated doing uh, interviews about that book because people would you know you only have four or five minutes on television and and people would say well tell us what the seven decisions are and I'm like oh no because if you if you just list the seven decisions people are like yeah okay I. Uh, responsibility. Yeah. Never heard that before. And, and, And yet I think that, that, uh, you know, a definition of wisdom is a, is a deeper understanding of principle. And I think that's significant that the word is deeper. Okay. Because you can have a deep understanding of principle and kind of stop there and that's a target, but it, but a deeper understanding of principle, when you, when you get that, where do you go from there? Well, deeper. I guess. And so it, it continues to unfold layers of understanding. And responsibility is a great example that uh, of something that everybody feels like they have a firm grasp on. And yet I don't really think society has a firm grasp on responsibility. I think there are two distinct sides to the to whatever argument is always ongoing about that but I feel like if society had a grasp on responsibility, we would have an economy that was kicking on all cylinders. We would have relationships that had a, a much greater chance of working and it, because responsibility, you know, the two sides, you got one side going, until these people accept responsibility for where they are, these people will never be able to, and you got the other side going, but it's not their fault. Don't don't you understand what their parents were like? And, what, and, and, and so, Is two distinct sides, but neither side really understands the, the essence of responsibility because the essence of responsibility is hope and control. And who among us doesn't want to have hope for a greater future that we can control? Okay. But if you, if you, don't take responsibility. If you blame your mother, if you blame the weather, you blame the economy, you blame the hurricane, you blame your neighbors, you blame the president, you know, there's no hope there because there's no control. I mean, if if, what, if where I have ended up in my life, in this horrible place that I've ended up really is the fault of the president of the United States of America, I mean, I might as well jump off a cliff now. What am I going to do about the president Who today? Whoever the president happens to be, what am I going to do? But if I can look in the mirror and I can say, you know, I've had some crazy things happen in my life. I, I've had some tragedies and I couldn't control any of them. But I have made choices in response to those crazy things that have led my life right down a pathway to a place I don't like. If we can understand believe that, that's good news. Because if you can understand and believe you can make choices that lead you to a place you don't like, doesn't it just make logical sense you could also make choices that will lead you to a place you do like? And so the game becomes make better choices. And that's what the other principles are about.
0: That's so good. And so for the listeners out there right now, I'd encourage you to think, what are two or three things that are going on in your life right now where you've been swirling around maybe the blame game? of looking at circumstance or looking at others and saying, well, things would be different if this circumstance were different or if that person would act or behave different and maybe reframe that now and say, look, I'm here because of choices that were made with or without my control, but I have the choice to move forward and make choices to do something more positive in my life. What are those choices? Well, what do, what, what do I need to do today to get an outcome that's got more hope because hope by nature, isn't it? Would you agree or disagree that hope by its very nature should be one of future positivity?
1: It should be. And I think that if, you know, I, I, I wrote a book, uh, Forbes called it one of the seven books every entrepreneur should read. And it's called The Bottom of the Pool. And The Bottom of the Pool, to me, is the is a metaphor for the truth, to go in down deep. Deeper, deeper understanding of principle, and and you know what what you just what you just laid out at the, at the bottom of the pool. People do need to understand that they are they do have a control that there is there is a control there an understanding you know the choice thing. I I think about perspective. And and when you when you ask somebody what is perspective, most people would say, well, it's how you see a thing. It's do you do you see the the glass half empty or half full? It's it's how you see something. And so that's only true. It's not the truth, because the truth at the bottom of the pool is that the level of water in, in the glass or the bottle is, is what it is. It's not half empty or half full. It just is. And so your perspective is not how you see it. It's how you choose to see it. And, and perspective is the only thing that can totally change the results without changing a single fact because people who who look at 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 a situation and say well this is the worst thing that could have ever happened in our lives this is the worst thing that could have happened um you know their thought process causes them to to sit back to to do nothing to dwell on that issue and how sad they are and how Unfortunate this is that this has occurred and what's likely to happen because of it. And and of course, they are a, a classic glass half-empty person. And glass half-empty people don't get promoted. They don't get hired for leadership positions. They they don't generally have a lot of people around them because they're a drag. And and so because there's not a lot of people around them, they don't get very many opportunities, they don't hear about them. And so they turn out to be exactly right it probably was the best the worst thing that could have happened but then there are some people who look at this and go you know what I would have never chosen this but this could be the best thing that could have ever happened to us but how many times have we you know we've changed and said Man what about that that was the best thing that ever happened and we would have never knew that was on the horizon and so this could be the best thing and so people who have that perspective they're naturally, you know, wide-eyed and looking for how this might fit into a narrative of the best thing that could happen. Well, what could they do? What opportunities might be on the horizon that wouldn't have been? And because they're generally happy people, they They get promoted. They get hired for leadership positions. There's more people around them because people just like them. And so if there's more people around them when there's opportunities to be shared because there's more people around them, they're hearing more opportunities. And life does, in fact, turn into that that being the best thing that could have ever happened. And yet the facts didn't change. And a brief example, Jeff, is years ago when, I live in Orange Beach, Alabama. And so you remember the oil spill. And when the the horizon oil spill happened, it was just, it was just devastating news. I mean, and and the the rumors and the news was that it would be generations before this was cleaned up, the before it'd be fixed. And and there were people in our area that literally closed their stores. And just left the key in the lock, just gave them back to the bank and just left town. And and there was, uh, you know, a charter boat industry is big on the Gulf of Mexico. And uh, my boys had gone to school with a girl whose father was a charter boat captain. And these guys, you know, they have notes on their boat and they're making payments on their boats. And and so all of a sudden it just dried up immediately. It was there were no no fishermen, no guests. No, I mean, the, the national guard wasn't letting people to the water. And, and so this uh, father of this little girl that went to school with my boys climbed up in his boat one day and shot himself and killed himself. And at at the same time, there were, there were a a small group of these charter boat guys going, okay, we still have boats. What, What do we do? what do we do and and at some point they realized that people were swarming down the interstate to see this oil and yet the the national guard wasn't letting people near the beach and so so one of my friends said you know what we are limited to six fishermen but we're not limited how many people we can put on the boat so i'm going to start having environmental tours and so he started charging people 20 bucks for an hour tour and and he would pile 40 people on the boat at 20 bucks per and he would tool out of the marina and go you know on the the speakers if you will look to your left there you'll see oil and up ahead on your right there is oil uh, straight ahead, you're going to see a clump in the water. That is oil. And, and people were thrilled, okay? And, and so when when the oil was cleaned up in less than a year, it, it, all of a sudden, these charter book captains are like, oh my gosh, I, I liked doing this. And I was saving fuel. And I wasn't fighting the bad weather. And people were happy and they weren't sick. And so how do you keep doing this? Well, one of them said, we're seeing dolphins. Let's just keep doing it and call them dolphin tours. And that's how the dolphin tours in our area got started.
0: That's, a, that's such a great story. So what you're saying is really kind of wisdom to me then is being able to have a um, positive perspective in the moment through your own life's experiences telling you that's the best approach versus having to take five, 10 years to reflect back on what I should have learned during that time. True wisdom is recognizing it in the moment and putting a positive perspective on what's possible uh, in any given circumstance versus having to have that rearview mirror five, ten years. Some people never learn the lesson, but in a lot of cases, it takes us too long to have learned the, lesson, learned the lesson that we could have learned in the moment had we been looking for it. And that's that noticer effect that you're talking about, having that ability to do that in the moment.
1: Yeah, they say, you know, same facts, but different perspectives years later will lead one family to say, thank God we, and other families to go, if only
0: we had. That's good. Well, Andy, I could do this all day with you, um, but I want to give people a chance to go learn more about you. I know you've got multiple things happening right now where we could benefit from. Um, I know from from a speaker, we can hire you as a speaker. We can hire you as a consultant. You've also got some other cool projects going on. Can you share with the audience where we can learn more about each of those?
1: Yeah, I work with businesses, uh, small and large on uh, year contracts and you can find out about that at creatingmeasurableresults.com and so that's just creatingmeasurableresults.com and then I have uh andyandrews.com that you you know learn about me until you're totally bored uh, and and then there is wisdomharbor.com which is one of the most exciting things probably my life's work. And uh, it's- Tell
0: us a little bit more about that one, the wisdomharbor.com. What is that?
1: It's a subscription site that is incredibly inexpensive because we wanted nobody to be left out of this because of uh, finances. And so uh, just like harbors, uh, harbors are safe places. Well, Wisdom Harbor has docks and uh, these docks are like, uh, an audiobook doc uh a musician's doc a writer's doc a bet you didn't know doc uh bet you didn't know doc or five to seven minute videos that are geared more toward uh, uh, science biology and history and uh, they're delivered by the high school teacher you wish you'd had the funny one and uh and and so there are um there are how do I docs and in other word docs. And so all this material is delivered by uh, the contributors who are uh, Grammy winners, comedians, CEOs, master chefs. Uh, we even have there's uh, uh, the CMA uh, a songwriter who uh, has 14 number ones and three song of the year awards is actually giving guitar lessons on Wisdom Harbor. And, and so this is going into schools, it's going into businesses, and it's a huge connector for families because it's, it's finally something that, once again, families can watch together. It only takes a couple of minutes and then you can uh, talk about it all dinner long. You know, there's the World War One animals, and so, I bet you didn't know that I particularly like. Bet you didn't know that, that in World War One, the largest commodity delivered to the battle battlefield during the whole war was animal food, because of the animals that they employed. There were five hundred thousand cats delivered to the trenches in World War One to fight rats. They used glowworms in jars to read maps at night, and wow. so just fascinating stuff. And so schools are using it. Parents are using it. Grandparents to connect with their adult children. And, and so.
0: I love it. I just logged on to the site. You're looking at it. This looks amazing. This is a, what a, what a cool idea and a great concept that fits just about any age group. And
1: Literally for, for a, an individual it's 20 something dollars for the entire year for full access and for a family with up to, Eight devices, it's 50-something dollars a year. And so a lot of schools are getting their teachers one, you know, getting getting the teachers each uh, a subscription to it. And then the parents and the townsfolk are coming along. And we're, That's great. we're working to build another greatest generation.
0: What a great kind of culmination of your life's work put into a place where people can just really tap into the brilliance and wisdom of the multitudes, right?
1: Yeah, and it's fun. We're having such a blast
0: doing it. Now, you know what's missing from this? I'm just going to make a recommendation that we have yeah, Musi- yeah. Musings from Under the Pier by Andy Andrews.
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, I, that You know, it's all a, a version of Musings from
0: Under the Pier. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. This looks amazing. So go to, go to wisdomharbor.com. H-A-R-B-O-U-R, if you don't know how to spell Harbor, because most people don't. They always don't put the U in there. But anyways, I mean, wisdomharbor.com and also go to Andy Andrews and then tell me the business one again, measurable, measurable com, And I, I would love to have you back on again at some point. And we'll go a little deeper into some of these concepts. We might even tap into some more of the time on the road as a comedian and then get an update from you on how things are going on this Wisdom Harbor site as well. Would you would you would you uh, honor us by coming back again?
1: Absolutely, i would be honored to. I, I, this is a great talking to you. We are we are fortunate to have you on our airwaves, Jeff. And so thank you for the work you're doing. And I, I'm honored to be back anytime you ask.
0: Well, you're the best. So uh, go get all the Andy's books, everybody, and jump into Wisdom Harbor. And if you're business you want to have a speaker, um, he's phenomenal. Bring him in to your meetings, to your corporate events, whatever the case may be, um, and just tap into this guy, you know, he's he's got a, a, a wealth of experience and uh, he teaches it in a way that's actually memorable, which who knew there was a way to do that. So uh, thanks again, you're the best, uh, best of luck to you. And you're, I know you're on an event, speaking event today and we'll have you on soon.
1: Thank you, Jeff, bye-bye.
0: You bet. Hey friends, this is Jim Knight